Well, we want to uh, welcome everyone. Uh, we have special groups here. We have the uh, Churchill Scholars, uh, one of whom, Arvind, has just been admitted to the Harvard Law School. And we also have a group of Tower Fellows. I'm not sure that many of you will actually know who and what the uh, Tower Fellows are. They are people who come back to the University of Texas, usually at the close of their careers, uh, to take the full course load of four classes each semester for the whole academic year. Now, if you can imagine this, this is quite a, uh, quite a challenge for us academics to get back into that. That would be quite a job. Uh, I'd also like to point out that we are on the verge of publishing a, uh, a new book in the series. This is a series that is uh, always based on lectures, Friday afternoon lectures to the British Studies. And it began in 1995 with Adventures to Britannia, went on to more adventures with Britannia, still more adventures with Britannia, yet more adventures with Britannia, <laughs> penultimate adventures with Britannia, ultimate adventures with Britannia. So at that time we had to rejig the titles <laughs> and it became resurgent adventures with Britannia, <laughs> irrepressible adventures with Britannia, resplendent adventures with Britannia, effervescent Adventures with Britannia, and the next, the volume to be published in uh, November, just to give you something to look forward to, will be called Serendipitous Adventures <laughs> with Britannia. Uh, let's see, Dan, you are going to introduce the speaker. Yeah, yeah, ready for me, please. Thank you, Roger. Uh, my name is Dan Burkholz. I'm from the English department, and it is my honor and pleasure to introduce my friend and colleague Sam Baker. Um, for you today. Roger, when he asked me to say a few words, stressed the few words part, so I won't talk about Sam's background at Chicago and Columbia where he got his degrees, or at Cornell where he was a fellow. won't talk about his monograph written on the water, British Romanticism and the Maritime Empire of Culture from Virginia, or his publications in really great journals like um, ELH, English uh, Literary History, and MLQ, Modern Language Quarterly. Won't get into any of that. The few words that I'm going to stress with Sam um, have to do with other kinds of things. I've known Sam since before I started here at UT, and Sam was recruiting me to come to British Studies before I was here at UT, and he's remained in that role for me and I think countless others around the department and the university. Um, Sam Baker, when I think of him and what he brings, uh, it, it is unquestionably a really rich sense of intellectual collaboration. Sam is the m most vital mind that I, that I know. He, he, um, he walks around with a, with a buzz of vitality and intellectualism and he produces that quality in the people around him. And so he's, he is an inveterate deliverer of conference talks. And even more strangely, he goes to talks on campus all the time. You will see him at whatever symposium is going forward because he's there and he, he's, he's uh, intellectually afire and he brings that quality. He brings those qualities of, I guess, big ideas and collectivism 
into a field, the humanities, which we hear a lot about these days as being something that's in retreat, that is shrinking, in which we're all a little bit shorter, smaller, and more timid than we used to be in what we might want to be. And when we're around Sam, we forget about that because he inspires us to uh, talk to one another and to remember why we got into this again. So whenever I see Sam in the hallway, I come away thinking new thoughts and having new books to read. And I, I, I don't say it very often to him. He's probably blushing right now. And so will I be, so will I be soon. But um, really, it is it's this old style intellectual fire that he brings. And so I'm really honored to be able to um, be the one who brings him to share that with you today. He takes those qualities to his university as well. Um, he's been a part of a lot of groups like the Public Feelings Working Group here, initiatives like this Good Systems um, Grand Challenge Initiative that's just recently been ratified by the, 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 the Tower leadership going forward. He's moved into New Media Studies and Digital Humanities from his traditional fields of strength in uh, British Romanticism and Scottish Literature, Scott and um, Radcliffe and, and folks like that. So he takes the stuff that he's interested in and he makes it a group project and he, he makes it an intellectual renewal project. And so that's why I'm so excited to, to see what he has to say. One important, if smaller, group and collaboration that he was a part of many years ago now, he and myself and Jory Woods, our, com our companion and colleague in, in um, UT English, we had the most uh, rewarding writing group that I've ever had. I've never had a writing group since then, I've never had one before then, but for a period of about five or so years, we met regularly and, um, and, and, and saw that. And I, I, and I think that he naturally produces that stuff. So thank you, Sam. Um, I will be quiet now and see what it is that you have to say, but please give him your warmest welcome, Sam Baker. Just a moment while I get the Jack Farrell podium up to the That's an allegory of old media and new here. Thank you so much, Dan. I hope I can live, live up to that wonderful introduction. Um, it's such an honor to share my research with you today, and I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to converse with you all after my talk. Um, so for some time now, I've been nursing a general interest in the Gothic. Some of you will remember a paper I gave here almost exactly 10 years ago on the theme of Wedgwood Gothic. Back then, I was imagining I'd undertake a whole panorama of investigations into the Gothic. These studies would span the period from 1756 to 1859, what some of us call the Romantic century, moving from Erasmus Darwin and other contemporaries of Wedgwood forward through Romantic period writers like Anne Radcliffe, William Wordsworth, and Walter Scott to arrive at Victorian practitioners of Gothic as different from each other as Edgar Allan Poe and, I'd like to argue, Charles Darwin. And I still have this landscape in view as I develop across various sub-projects an account of what I'm coming to call spectral care. My focus now, however, is not so much on this grand book project, the working title of which is Spectral Care, Gothic Stewardship in the Landscape of British Romantic Media. Increasingly, I find that I'm thinking in portrait mode rather than in landscape mode, and focusing on the somewhat smaller, but perhaps even more significant problem of what to make of the work and life 
of Sir Walter Scott. For practical and professional reasons, but I think also for proper procedural reasons, I'm now planning to sit down and write a single author study of Scott. In fact, I've begun this monograph and I'm sharing the first draft of the first chapter with you all starting now. Who was, who is Walter Scott? And what makes him so important to me anyhow? The short answer is that Scott is a once famous Scottish author who's rarely read anymore, but who exerted a decisive influence on Western letters when he popularized the historical novel as a national art form. Without Scott, there would be no War and Peace, no Gone with the Wind, no Lord of the Rings, because you remember it's a book written by scholarly hobbits, right, after <laughs> the fact, right? Um, and no long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. So that's the initial argument for Scott's significance that I make to students when I'm inviting them to read Scott, and I stand behind it. Still, this argument about Scott's significance for cultural history invites the further question of what ongoing life, if any, Scott's works have. So who among you has read a Scott novel? Good, good. Who among you has read a Scott novel and you're under 30? <laughs> George, George, you're here, but where are your students, George? Where? <laughs> I barely, I only, I barely made it, you know, to read one under 30, and it's, lo it's lost in the under 30 crowd, I think. Um, so was it Ivanhoe that you read? So people, people who raised their hand, Ivanhoe, one of the novels. Yeah, that's um, the main novel I'll be talking about. That's good. The Heart of Midlothian? Yes, excellent. That's right. See, that's the greatest novel written in English. So you, you just, yeah, that's, that's brilliant. But there's still time for the rest of you. So. There are other arguments for Scott's significance, and I've heard many of them voiced in this room, often phrased as rhetorical questions. Did Scott help inspire the arts and crafts movement? Yes, he did. Would Scott, a Scotsman who is also self-consciously a patriot of Britain, support Brexit or Scottish independence or both? Whatever the answer, Scott's thinking about nations and states in the British Isles is a live topic in Scotland now where the culture ministry is avidly funding investigations into what Scottish literature tells us about Scottish and British identity. What did the Brontes make of Scott's novels? A great deal. And studying Scott can teach us much about literary craft, both about how he was imitated and about how later writers chose to abjure his example. When E.M. Forster, for, for instance, wrote his how-to manual for fiction writers, aspects of the novel, he made Scott his case study in authorial foolishness. So for better or for worse, Scott's deeply woven into the aesthetic and political fabric of British studies, which is why I keep bringing him up in Q&A sessions here. It's really my habit of doing that. and we feel like I owed you all a talk on Scott. So yes, the forms of Scott's historical fiction subtend costume dramas, sci-fi epics, and works in myriad other narrative genres we enjoy. And if we study how Scott formed his fiction, we'll better appreciate how work since has been crafted. But Scott's importance is more than a matter of craft. I want to argue that Scott's achievement marks an event in the history of thought, especially when we take his accomplishments in fiction and connect them with the emergence of the cultural, political, and social institutions that Scott did so much to build as an artist and public figure. This event in the history of thought can well be described, in my view, as the promulgation of a cultural ethos of stewardship. And that is why stewardship is my theme. You'll notice that I've 
made it Walter Scott's stewardship and the stewards instead of the other way around because I want to dwell a little bit on stewardship. And let's pause for a minute to define the term. Per the OED, the word means the office of steward and the conduct of the office of steward, administration, management, control. The idea that stewardship is an office is, I think, crucial. Steward is a social role to which one is appointed. We are familiar as well with a further sense of stewardship as the responsible use of resources. And this is a sense, interestingly, which I think the OED fails to do justice. Now, the OED does note this normative sense of steward and stewardship in play in ecclesiastical contexts, but only starting in the 20th century. Regardless of how one would date the origins of such a normative sense of stewardship, it has resonated, I think, for some time now in the use of stewardship for conservation discourse, whether cultural or environmental. And I do think, as will become clear, there's already a normative dimension to Scott's use of the term. Still, fundamentally for Scott, stewardship quite specifically and materially denotes the business of a steward. In the first place, an official who controls the domestic affairs of a household, especially supervising his master's table. The sense, of course, continues the use of steward to denote servants of this kind. But concerned as Scott was with affairs of state, it matters greatly to him that, per the OED, after the Norman Conquest, the title had come to designate an office in the royal household, held only by a great noble of the realm, the administrator, often with merely nominal duties, of certain estates of the crown. In Scotland, particularly, a steward would be a magistrate originally appointed by the king to administer the crown lands, but moreover the term named the magistrate to rule them all. Originally, this was the first officer of the Scottish king in early times who had control of the royal household, great administrative powers, and the privilege of leading the army into battle. This office, the OED goes on to explain, fell into the crown upon the accession of Robert the Steward as Robert II, whence the name of the heir apparent, so whence the name of the royal house of Stuart. Right? So the office fell into the crown upon the accession of Robert the Steward as Robert II, whence the name of the royal house of Stuart. But the title was given to the heir apparent until the union. Great Steward of Scotland is now a title of the Prince of Wales. Now, on the one hand, this idea that the Stuarts would be managers for the realm, not its monarchs, seems to contradict the ethos of absolutism, for which the family would become known. Centuries later, when James Stuart, King James VI of Scotland, became in 1603 James I of England, to be succeeded by Charles I with his personal rule, and after the Restoration, by Charles II, who continued to believe he ruled by divine right. On the other hand, the idea of the stewards as stewards accords with the figurative sense noted by the OED of the steward as an administrator and dispenser of wealth, favors, etc., especially when regarded as a servant of God or of the people. Steward is a high office then, but an office redolent of low things. Perhaps this explains why the OED saw fit to feature what it also dismisses as a spurious etymology. Quote, the assumption that Stigwart originally meant Keeper of the pigsties. Just, just saying. They say, like, here's the etymology, which is wrong, but we wanted to print it anyway. <laughs> so, go figure. So the steward, then, is an officer of the state who oversees its household resources, if not in the broadest sense managing its economy, still at least sustaining its elite. Ultimately, for better or worse, Scott, as an author, styled himself such a steward, 
superintending a virtual realm of national culture. Now, I hasten to add, I'm ambivalent about the social form and habit of mind I call stewardship, and about the emphasis that Scott places on it. Such ambivalence helps explain my interest, and moreover, I would argue, Scott's own interest in considering stewardship in relation to the Stuarts, a family known for its absolutist, if not absolute, miserable failures. Was stewardship self-evidently the one job that the Stuarts had to do? Like, you had one job, Stuarts! <laughs> and the job at which they failed? Or is the task of stewardship a Sisyphean task at which no one can ever succeed completely? Perhaps the role of a steward is ultimately a Gothic curse that inevitably ends in a haunting. Maybe every steward is, at least to some small extent, caretaker of their own personal Overlook Hotel. <laughs> I don't have a slide for that. I spared you the slide. Maybe stewards are always in danger of killing with their kindnesses. To paraphrase Walter Subchak, however, say what you want about the tenets of stewardship, dude. At least it's an ethos. And personally, while I try to be humble and self-critical about it, the ethos of stewardship is one that I'm proud to transmit, appointed as I am to work for the state as an educator, minding how my students care for their culture. Turning to Scott, what is it about Scott's life and art, beyond his art itself, that makes him such a significant figure for the history of culture, understood, as I'm starting to suggest, as an ethos of stewardship? It's important to understand, I think, the synthetic work that Scott did in his life and art to knit together so many strands of contemporary experience. He was, as mentioned, a Scot and a Briton, married to a Frenchwoman, with a brother who emigrated to Canada and children who worked abroad in the empire. He was a poet as well as a novelist, and as a man of letters and a man of his times, he had many other roles besides. Let's enumerate some of them, placing them in relation to our theme. Well into his 30s, Scott supported himself and his family practicing law, and he continued to work as a lawyer long after he'd achieved literary fame. Practicing law in early modern Edinburgh entailed detailed historical knowledge of Scottish, English, and British legal history and procedure, which helps explain why matters of government at every scale figure so significantly in Scott's literary works. Scott also held government office as a sheriff depute for Selkirkshire from 1799 until his death. In Scotland by that time, a sheriff was not an officer of the law in our sense, but a local judge. Thus, care for a specific community formed part of Scott's broad range of responsibilities. The concept of an office was central to another aspect of Scott's persona, his little publicized but constant devotion to Episcopalianism. In Scotland, this denotes the minority practice there of adhering to the Church of England's form of ecclesiastical organization with its hierarchy of bishops, in a land where Presbyterianism, worship governed from the pews, had long since been settled on as the national denomination. High Anglicanism, often to or beyond the point of crypto-Catholicism, was long a faith championed by the Stuarts. And in politics, Scott sided definitively with the church and state wing of the Whig party that coalesced around William Pitt the Younger, the faction that would come to be known first derisively and then definitively in Scott's time as the Tories. Of the original Tories, Scott knew much, not just as a legal historian, but as at first an amateur and then a professional antiquarian and folklorist. This work informed his fiction in ways that I'll explore. First, and perhaps most spectacularly, it informed his poetry. 
After publishing miscellaneous translations, mostly from the German and ballads, German and Scottish, in the 1790s, Scott's initial major literary success was an extraordinarily ambitious undertaking, a two-volume compendium of the minstrelsy of the Scottish border. He followed up this collection of actual ballads with a supercharged imaginative pastiche, a hybrid ballad romance called The Lay of the Last Minstrel, which created a sensation in Scotland, England, and America, making Scott a literary superstar. That's why I was appreciating the feedback from the microphones as the talk started. It would have been good if I'd been reading The Lay of the Last Minstrel, which I will do a little bit of right now. This poem contains Scott's most famous lines, which are worth glancing at for an idea of his strong commitment to a poetry that would sustain national culture in the act romantic mode of blood and soil. You know what's coming, right? Breathes there the man with soul so dead who never to himself hath said, this is my own, my native land. Scott. For Scott, meanwhile, wherever the nation is, the state is never far behind. His equally popular follow-up poem, 1807's Marmion, opens with twin eulogies for two recently deceased former prime ministers. Pitt, and though he did not employ his office quite as Scott had wished he would, also the Whig, Charles James Fox. And a couple of quick asides about this. Um, Fox's father was an old Tory, something of a Jacobite, hence Fox's Stuart names, Charles James Fox, right? which would become a kind of historical irony like a conservative talk show host named Kennedy. Also, speaking of Marmion, it is this poem that features Scott's other most famous lines, often misattributed to Shakespeare. That's Scott. <clears throat> Even while he was achieving fame as a poet, Scott saw his true calling as a man of letters to be the antiquarian preservation of the literature of the past. In that vein, he edited crucial editions of the works of Jonathan Swift, John Dryden, Dan Defoe, and Anna Seward. And our friend and colleague Lisa Moore's recently published edition of Seward is the first in Scott's edition of, I think, 1810. Each of these editions came complete with significant biographies penned by Scott. And Scott was no less as attentive to documents of politics and statecraft. When Scott fell behind a competitor in the race to edit the Harley manuscripts, an important cache of literary and other documents on which Dan Burkholz is a resident expert, he abandoned that effort to focus his attention on bringing out a new edition with updated headnotes of the papers on state affairs known as the Somers Tracts. This, uh, I had a uh, very kind librarian in Scotland bring me out the full set of the Somers Tracts. And, you know, Scott really did you know, work through all these volumes of material and write new headnotes uh, for all these pieces. It's extraordinary, um, the productivity of writers in the age before television and smartphones. Um, all told, Scott did more than perhaps even Samuel Johnson to invent the modern role of the editor as curator, learning as he did so much about both the old government office of stewardship and its modern cultural practice. Scott was an innovator in business as well, vertically integrating his activities by investing in his publisher, an initiative that would eventually bring about his financial ruin. Not adverse to conflicts of interest, Scott published frequently as a critic and helped found one of the main critical organs of the day, the Quarterly Review. In 1814, Scott published his debut novel, Waverly, anonymously. And many of its reviews surmised that he was the author, but he used his presence in the critical arena to disavow his responsibility for a work in a genre considered somewhat beneath a gentleman. At the same time, as a novelist, Scott surpassed himself 
intensifying at once as he did so, fiction's quotient of realism and romance. It was his fiction that would secure his reputation as a romantic genius, especially as other authors, primarily Lord Byron, eclipsed him as Britain's leading poet. And it's Scott's fiction and its consideration of stewardship and the Stuarts that I want to consider today in relation to Scott's antiquarian editorial work in the time that remains to me. So, here's a picture of the 26 novels, more or less, that because they were for the most part published anonymously, attributed to the author of Waverly, became known as the Waverly novels. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Roger Lewis and British Studies for the grant that enabled me uh, a while ago now to purchase the superb Edinburgh edition of Scott's Fiction at a time when having written an essay for Edinburgh University Press volume, I had a window in which I could get these at a 40% discount. <laughs> I said, Roger, I need help. I need to make this happen. And actually owning the novels has really made a huge difference to me personally and professionally, and I'll always be grateful uh, for this resource. The novels first appeared in waves from 1814 until Scott's death in early 1832. They are, of course, all works of historical fiction, although a few of them are set during Scott's lifetime, and a few of them, especially the medieval novels Scott wrote late in his life, stray so far from history as to verge on romance fantasy. More than half of Scott's novels are set in Stuart realms, or involve Stuarts, or their political enthusiasts, known as Jacobites, as characters. Those are the um, novels highlighted in red here. These are the, what you call the Stuart novels. Um, although, perhaps of, because of Ivanhoe, we think of Scott as a chronicle of the Middle Ages, only four of his novels are set in medieval Britain. His other medieval novels are set in the continent. And only Ivanhoe, unless I'm mistaken, depicts England uh, in medieval times. So before I begin trying to substantiate my argument, let me restate it once more in its strong form. In his novels, Walter Scott draws on his antiquarian studies to propose an ethos of stewardship for artists and statesmen. Thus, just as Samuel Taylor Coleridge was urging in his lay sermons that literary authors constitute a clerisy, that's Coleridge's term, a body of traditional spiritual leaders, but working in lay fields like literature, Scott, writing his novels, was assuming the mantle of a purveyor of what I call spectral care. Scott roots culture in the state, narrating the history of Scotland, England, and Britain as a series of lessons in political theology, at the center of which lie the ultimately tragic, if entertainingly gothic, failures of the Stuart monarchs to steward the nation. Now, the very best evidence I have for this argument comes from two quite obscure Scott novels, The Fair Maid of Perth, set in medieval Stuart Scotland, and Woodstock, a tale that represents the Stuarts in hiding during the Commonwealth. So I'm going to talk briefly about Woodstock and The Fair Maid of Perth, and then talk for longer about Ivanhoe, a novel that more of you will know, where I also think we can see stewardship and even the Stuarts uh, in, on Scott's mind. Woodstock, which appeared in uh, 1826, is named after the Royal Hunting Lodge outside Oxford, where Scott sets his narrative. A sprawling Norman castle, well known as the site of Henry II's intrigue with his mistress Rosamond. Woodstock Lodge was ruined in the Civil War and torn down in the 18th century in the course of the landscaping of Blenheim Palace. I don't know if we've ever tried to do this, but I've you know, wandered around the grounds of Blenheim looking for traces <laughs> of Woodstock Lodge. I'm sub 200-year tradition now. Scott frames his novel with a preface, 
claiming it had been redacted from the papers of a high church minister, royalist agent, and antiquary named Rochecliffe. Supposed to have had the living at Woodstock under Charles I, and again after the Restoration, and to have witnessed a celebrated series of incidents of ghostly haunting that occurred at Woodstock Lodge in the Commonwealth Interregnum. And actually were documented. There are articles about you know, the ghosts of Woodstock um, in the popular press. The ghost, it turns out, was per Scott, actually Charles II in hiding. The novel narrates how Charles II escapes the clutches of Oliver Cromwell, affording both historical figures sympathetic portraits while showing them both learning lessons in their respect due to ancient properties like Woodstock Lodge. Once Cromwell's appointed stewards of the Woodstock estate are chased off, Charles II, in hiding there, becomes, after a fashion, the estate's steward, thus finding, if only evanescently, the mode of kingship as stewardship over sacred antiquity proper to him as a steward. Meanwhile, the steward author antiquary within Scott's novel, Rochecliffe, the Royalist Divine, is literally at the center of Woodstock, a secret agent spinning his webs of intrigue from a hideout accessible through a trap door hidden in a portrait that lies secreted deep within the lodge's labyrinth. That's an awesome novel. The portrait that hides Rochecliffe depicts Sir Henry's ancestor, Vernon Lee, notable as a despoiler of monasteries, a legacy that various characters wryly ironize upon now that Woodstock is threatened in its turn with dissolution, remembering that Sir Vernon was said to have brought a malediction on his house through his penchant for sacrilege. But the cleric, hidden behind Sir Vernon's portrait, works busily to counteract this legacy. If he cannot hope to rescue the building itself, then at least he may prove able to translate its legacy into a new era. Rochecliffe's medium is the written messages he sends and receives from a study that, being described as both an armory and a library, has to be imagined as the emblem of Scott's own estate of Abbotsford at the time undergoing a siege of a different kind. So Rochecliffe is kind of a Varus figure, if you know Game of Thrones. Uh, also, um, uh, this figure of um, him as a web weaver is Scott's figure, not mine. He's repeatedly described as spider-like. Until I read Woodstock, I had long wondered why George Eliot, in the chapters of Middlemarch, concerned with Fred Vinci's somewhat unfortunate infatuation with the Waverly novels. Remember, he spends all his time reading Scott. It's part of his problem. Um, you know, in that, those chapters, Eliot likened Scott to a spider. It's a beautiful epigraph about Scott and the webs he weaves, right? Which I think is an allusion to the webs we weave and of course we practice to deceive, but also to this idea, this character of Rochecliffe, especially since Rochecliffe is not only modeled on antiquary agents such as Scott studied, but is clearly meant as an avatar of the novelist himself. Just finally on, on Woodstock, uh, this is actually a portrait of Walter Scott's dog, but he writes his dog into Woodstock's, if you like dogs in literature, Woodstock's a novel for you. And um, if you, when we go back to the slide of Scott with his dog, right, this is a sort of famous pose of Scott and his dog, which in the original illustrations of Woodstock, right, they would um, have Charles II sitting there with his dog in like the same pose, right? It's kind of a, kind of a rhyme between the two of them. All right. So in the Fair Maid of Perth, um, which I'm just going to touch on quickly, we find what we might call Scottish Gothic hair articulated through a patient exploration of the difficulties of steward stewardship in a medieval court and a Catholic epoch. Facing the difficulties of managing the clans of Scotland, the Stuarts frame their dilemmas as problems in stewardship. Are we both not sons of the same steward of Scotland? 
says one of the Stuart princes to the other as they think about their, uh, you know, the um, problems that uh, you know, beset them in 14th century Scotland, an unmanageable province or close to it. I could go on expounding on this little red medieval novel, but for the rest of my time today, I want to focus on a more familiar text and legend. On then to Ivanhoe, a romance by the author of Waverley, etc., published by Scott in 1820 at the height of his popularity and powers. Ivanhoe is set in the East Midlands, somewhat north of the environs of Nottingham, where we've come to locate our idea of Sherwood Forest. The novel is set in 1194, after the Third Crusade in England, where Normans and Saxons are still not quite reconciled. And I've got a little handout here, just a, a bit of uh, a bit about um, Ivanhoe, so I don't have to don't have to uh, you don't have to get out your phones and look up a plot summary of Ivanhoe while you're listening to me. Whenever I take out my phone in British Studies, by the way, I'm always looking up pertinent information, you know, as background <laughs> of the talk. But you know, I want to, want to keep you from having to do that. Um, So the novel is set in 1194, after the Third Crusade, in an England where Normans and Saxons are still not quite reconciled. The cast of characters includes a Saxon thane, Cedric, his ward Rowena, his son Wilfred of Ivanhoe, estranged from him because he followed King Richard the Lionheart to the Crusade, King Richard, Prince John, Friar Tuck, and Robin of Loxley, the whole Robin Hood crew. And the Robin Hood movie is particularly the Errol Flynn movie, you know, fairly close to Ivanhoe in plot. Um, there was no Maid Marian in Ivanhoe. Um, it's a brace of evil churchmen, various knights, Templar and otherwise, Isaac the Jew of York, and his daughter Rebecca, and from Cedric's household, Gerth the swineherd, Wamba the jester, and Oswald the cupbearer. And to save time, I've put the whirlwind plot summary on my next few slides on that handout that I've given you. And I enjoin you all to uh, burn the handout uh, after reading it so as not to spoil one of history's great plots for any student who might find it discarded and accidentally peruse its contents. Um, an obvious problem for us today, as we look to Ivanhoe, is the question of where are the stewards, and for that matter, where in 1194 in England are the stewards? So let's start our search at the novel's uh, very beginning. What do we find? We discover that the very first chapter commences with an epigraph in which pigs are compelled reluctant to the several styes. Here in Alexander Pope's translations of Homer, literature's greatest styward, Ulysses' faithful servant Eumaeus, proves himself able also to be the only Ithacan worthy of the office of steward. Upon the return of the disguised Ulysses, Eumaeus unknowingly but perspicaciously sets a table for the king whose cleansing of the realm he will soon help to effect. The immediate reference is to the first chapter's set piece with Gerth, Cedric Swineherd, and the fool Wamba. More broadly, however, Scott is indicating a theme of the proper stewardship of a kingless realm. Each in their own way, characters from Friar Tuck to Robin Hood to Cedric, Rebecca, and Ivanhoe will prove their worth by carrying out offices of care without knowing that in so doing, they're restoring the state to its proper balance. So this is why I think the OED might have put the etymology in there. I need to do more research into this, but I think that there may have been a, a, a traditional etymology of steward is sty ward that Scott's playing with with the, um, you know, the pig imagery in Ivanhoe. 
Think for a moment. Who is the king whose return is longed for in modern British consciousness? After Ivanhoe, that iconic king beyond the water becomes Richard the Lionheart. But before Ivanhoe, it had been King James, the old Stuart pretender, whose own return in 1715 failed spectacularly, and whose son, Bonnie Prince Charlie's tragic 1745 adventure in British soil furnished the topic that, as the subject of his first novel, made the very name of the author of Waverley, which appears on Ivanhoe's title page. Where is restoration in this novel, in Ivanhoe, taking place? In that pleasant district of Merry England, which is watered by the River Don, right? Right about here. And more particularly, in an extensive wood, Scott tells us, the remains of which are still to be seen at the noble seats of Wentworth, of Warncliffe Park, and around Rotherham. So where are we? Looking back at the text, one toponym, which is also a family name, should jump out to scholars and friends of British studies. Does anybody see it? This name, the subject of lectures in this very room by Michael Charlesworth and Jean Barkas, is Wentworth. And note that Scott quite deliberately makes reference not just to Wentworth Woodhouse or to the Wentworth family as one corporate body, but quite particularly to the noble seats of Wentworth. This is because, as those who have heard or read Michael or Janine on the Wentworths know, the family underwent a spectacular schism after the Glorious Revolution, which saw one of its palaces, Wentworth Woodhouse, become a center of Whig power, the base of the Rockingham Whigs, while another, newly styled Wentworth Castle, would be the site for pseudo-Saxon follies that Michael, as convincingly argued, were formative experiences for Horace Walpole, helping catalyze the emergence of a Gothic aesthetic in 18th century Britain. Here's a map um, that shows the propinquity of Wentworth Woodhouse and Wentworth Castle to each other and the Connorsburg Castle on which Torkelstone in Ivanhoe is modeled, all three lying at some distance from Ashby de la Zouch, which is where Scott sets the novel's famous tournament sequence. Right, so there's Ashby down there. Sherwood Forest um, is right here, of course, around Nottingham. Right? Most of the action of the novel um, is up here in this zone where you have Wentworth Castle, Wentworth Woodhouse, Connorsboro Castle in Doncaster. So with a subtle twist of syntax, Scott sets Ivanhoe across the contested historical political terrain in which the fate of the Stuarts would be settled. A reference to the seat of Wentworth or to the noble seats of Wentworth, Warncliffe Park, and Rotherham would simply have ambiguous reference. By pluralizing the seats and adding additional prepositions, however, Scott makes it clear that he's invoking both Wentworth homes. And note that long before Scott wrote Ivanhoe, the Jacobite Tory branch of the Stratford family, ensconced at Wentworth Castle, had chosen to identify Saxon England in particular with the legitimacy it invested in the Stuart cause. And just to illustrate this uh, from you know, a uh, beautifully uh, published uh, uh, article of Michael's, here's a, a photograph from Wentworth Castle with the the moon, the moon, the daylight, right? The kind of particular Saxon architecture um, that uh, the Wentworth family prized there and built more of. The Tory Wentworth family, that is. This part of my slideshow, I have a number of slides that explain how Scott uses the contest of Saxons and Normans as it plays out imaginatively in Ivanhoe to work through problems of legitimacy, spiritual practice, and romance. Um, 
But I'm not going to go through you know, all of this kind of received wisdom about Ivanhoe for you. Um, I'm just going to say that Scott has long been said to have raised these problems intentionally with solutions in view. What solutions he advances, however, remains in dispute. With what we might call rival Whig and Tory theories being advanced of Scott's intentions. Some say Scott narrates the emergence of liberal modernity. Others say he glorifies a cruel reactionary nationalism. Some say that Scott champions tolerance, as with what seemed like a sensitive treatment of Rebecca. Others say he secularizes religion only to sublimate it into an evangelical imperialism, to which Rebecca, consigned to pre-inquisition Spain, may be thought a sacrifice. And you know, you could also think of Rebecca's all this attempted rape scenes of Rebecca in the novel as being a creepy spectacularization, right, of uh, of otherness in Scott's time. Some experience Scott as a psychological realist, and you know, actually, I'll say that I do. Others, notably Mark Twain, have charged him with deluding whole populations into patriarchal war. And this is the famous argument that Twain makes in Life in the Mississippi that it was reading Scott and reading Ivanhoe in particular. Right, that gave rise to the ethos of chivalry in the Old South that brought on the Civil War. I've rushed through these debates because while they're fascinating, my aim is to move beyond them by discerning a different principle at work in Scott's art. What arguments in Scott run athwart these old lines of battle? Scott may inherit both Scottish Enlightenment stadial theory and Burkean skepticism about the human capacity to manage change. But does he transmit to us something besides conservatism and progressivism? I've been suggesting that for Scott, the idea of culture furnishing a vehicle for conceptualizing self-organizing change at multiple scales of government, an idea that we might think of as homologous with the theory of evolution developed by Charles Darwin, who as a student of Edinburgh University likewise inherited both Scott Enlightenment's stadial theory and Burkean skepticism about the human capacity to manage change. But whence, however, did Scott develop his idea of culture? What stakes did he understand the historiography of the Saxons and of the Norman yoke to have had for the fortunes of those later dynasties, the Stuarts and the Hanoverians? To what extent was his interest in the historiography essentially political? Or to what extent was it driven by cultural or even theological motives, which, while they may have had political ramifications, were understood by Scott to be more elemental. So my last couple paragraphs here, I want to give my tentative answers to these questions, which involve research I'm conducting into Scott's affinity for the 17th century antiquary, Henry Spellman. In his edition of the Somers Tract, Scott reprinted an essay attributed to Henry Spellman, whom he touts as famous for his learned researches. Spellman, Scott writes, was well known by his works upon the antiquity, sorry, Spellman, Scott writes, was well known by his works upon the antiquities of the English law, his history of the English councils, and, very significantly, I think, his Saxon glossary. Spellman was one of the great Saxonists of the 17th century. Spellman was a man of high church principles, most notoriously on display in his The History and Fate of Sacrilege from the beginning of the world continually to this day, written under Charles I. This tract was not published till the end of the 17th century, and then only quietly. Notably, in 1809, Scott would write to his publisher that he was contemplating an edition of Spellman's The History and Fate of Sacrilege, 
in its own right. This book of Spellman's is well known to a certain stripe of scholars of the Gothic. In it, Spellman catalogs all of the major instances in English history of the despoilization of churches, of any church, Catholic or Protestant, although he writes as an Anglican, and the putative unfortunate consequences of this sacrilege for its perpetrators. Spellman lingers first on William the Conqueror's desecration of Saxon churches and the disaster that that brought on William's family. And then, of course, moves to the depredations of Henry VIII, before somewhat gleefully cataloging the evils that befall the families involved in such despoilation. Until however many generations, and less than until those families repent of their sacrilegious activities and take up the mantle of the pastoral care of the people that once had been the office of the churchmen whom they displaced. Now, Ivanhoe, as a project in and about the conservation of Saxon linguistic and cultural heritage, not only aligns itself with Spellman's recuperative project, it also dramatizes it with its plot full of exactly corrupt churchmen being displaced by political leaders and common people allying as stewards for the people. And here, right, the scene of hospitality where Richard the Lionheart and Friar, Truck, Friar, Friar Tuck drink together, right, could be seen as emblematic of this alliance of common outlaws, renegade churchmen, right, and political leaders against, right, both the old corrupt church and the corrupt leaders who would despoil it and neglect the people. Rochecliffe, the antiquarian author steward figure at the heart of Woodstock, also, I think, seems modeled on Spellman and antiquaries of his stripe. To this day, Spellman remains an important figure for intellectual historians, less because of his obviously eccentric views and the culpability of sacrilegious aristocracy than because of his central role in the formulation of the idea of feudalism as a distinct historical epoch. J.G.A. Pocock's first book, An Investigation of Ideas of England's Ancient Constitution, published in 1957, features extensive discussions of Spellman as a legal theorist who championed feudal relations as an alternative to the common law theory of ancient rights that would, after Coke and others, achieve hegemony with the Whigs. Real interest of Spellman's work for Scott scholars, perhaps, lies in the way that its antiquarian form suggested afterlife for that third lost strand of English jurisprudence, canon law. Spellman's whole antiquarian enterprise is devoted, after all, to charging propertied persons, however marred in the date of their possessions, with ancient spiritual responsibilities. Last paragraph. Let me say one thing more to the appropriatories of churches that happily they hitherto have not dreamed of writes Spellman in one of his tracts. And that is that by having these personages, they are charged with the cure of souls and make themselves subject to the burden that lieth so heavily upon the head of every minister to see the service of God performed, the people instructed, and the poor relieved. It is this charge of spectral care, this idea of Gothic stewardship, that I believe that Scott saw bound up with the fate of the Stuarts with his own role as a steward of national culture for the 19th century and beyond. Perhaps even to Britain today, where just yesterday, The Guardian quoted the former head of the civil service as saying that we are reaching the point where the civil service must consider putting its stewardship of the country ahead of service to the government of the day. Could this be the true revolution of which Scott might dream? Thank you. <laughs>